Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Well, we are back after yet another school holiday break and another surprise lockdown here in the state of Victoria. Having the kids around in the house all day certainly does put a bit of a crimp on finding a quiet time to record, but we're finally back in the chair, back in front of the mic, and back with a really, really good book to talk about. And that book is Strayer by Anthony O'Connor. I feel it's the kind of book that you can only say the title and read in the intended accent of its vernacular. Strayer is a very Australian ocker kind of book, and it was absolutely fantastic. I'll get to the specifics as to why it was so great in a moment, but first I'll let the book introduce itself in its own words. Strayer lies in ruins. A once proud nation, former Australia, has regressed into a patchwork civilization cowering under the deadly heat of a merciless sun. Savage violence lurks around every corner. Good pubs, but. Affable young mutant Franger risks life and double-jointed limb to help provide for his makeshift family of mutie kids and increasingly senile friend and mentor, Ken Ages. After finding a strange artifact in the deadly Downlow district, Franger inadvertently starts a horrifying chain reaction. Something terrifying takes form in New Sydney. A colossal beast rises as unspeakably powerful as it is malevolent. And if Franger and his crew of misfits can't stop it, then all of Straya is completely fucked. Now right off the bat, that description introduces you a little bit to the kind of language that you'll be facing in this novel. It's a really unique and interesting blend of the sort of dystopian future speak that you do find scattered about the genre but it's blended it mercilessly with some of the most obtuse Australian ockerisms that you can possibly imagine. I mean, when the first three pages of the book are an extensive glossary of terms for the nuanced and poetic Strayan language, you know that you're in for a bit of a ride, especially when the second thing in that, right after the word butte, is beesdick as a unit of measurement. Really puts you in a good frame of mind, and it really puts you in full expectation of what you're in for over the next several hundred pages. Or, if you're like me, for much longer than that, because I found it was basically impossible to read this book and walk away from it without having accidentally adopted this absolutely poetic vernacular. Just reading a single page of this novel is musical. The words absolutely leap off the page and just lodge themselves in your brain. And the temptation to read it out loud just grows as you read through this book. Like There were so many parts of it where you were just sort of getting in the groove of the very unique dialect that this book is written in. And then a paragraph would come along which just murders the English language. And it's glorious. Just the entire bit will just make you sit back and just need to drag off a cigarette after your brain's finished passing the language and ferreted out the meaning, just the glorious meaning behind all this prose. 
and it's in every part of the book from one of the characters' names being Ken Ages, because when he was asked how long he's been around for, his answer was fucking ages, all the way through the really creative names for the locations of Flesh Alley, where all the prozies are, right up to the only time in my entire 30-something year life of reading science fiction, fantasy, dystopian literature, where the final battle against the great evil was undertaken with a mob of kids on the side of the road crying out, Khan, you can do it! The whole way through. The entire thing is just a joy to read from beginning to end. And once your brain just locks into the style of language that's being used, it's done so well in this. It's folded so well into the world that you kind of don't notice it after a while until you, you know, look up from the book and try to hold a conversation with anybody else around you. And you realize that now you're speaking with this absolutely inscrutable accent and language because it is so normal. It's, it's just really well written through the book. Because sometimes when you're reading things and they have, you know, the accented character who really stands out because they've got the accent, they can almost be hard to read. Sometimes they're really hard to engage with because you're having to spend time every time their dialogue crops up trying to decode it. This book sort of took that problem and made it into a feature because the entire book being written that way, internal monologue and all character dialogue, It takes what could have been a stumbling block and just makes it part of your experience. Your brain adapts to it really quickly and then you can just enjoy. It really is like poetry, the language. It's really wonderful to read through. And although I feel like I probably could stop the review there and just highlight how wonderful this is, the truth is that the amazing language of this book is dressing up what is really a deeply engaging and thoroughly enjoyable narrative as well. I think the major takeaway from it is that dystopian future literature really walks a thin line between our fascination with the horror of the genre, the just the terrible future of corporations run amok, of the fallout from nuclear war, this apocalyptic wasteland that people are trying to live through and trying to scratch out as meagre, brutal, terrifying existence until their brutal and terrifying end. There's a certain sort of a, like voyeurism that comes with that, where sitting in our comfortable present-day locations, we can read through and be gleefully horrified at what these people have to go through. Although with every passing year, it seems that we've got just that little niggle at the back of our mind growing a little bit more loud as we wonder just how far away these horrible dystopian futures might actually be. There's a danger that that's where the world building and where the narrative focus will be and stop. Particularly when it comes to narrative experiences like movies and video games, where how many times have you seen it where you go through the entire experience just to have the protagonist you know die horribly or futilely at the end so that everything that you've watched or everything that you've played through just the struggle to survive has been for nothing 
And that's sort of the message of it is like this world, this future is hopeless and the best you can do is survive for as long as you can. This book, Straya, takes a different approach to it in that the world is brutal and life is nasty and short. But there is a thread of optimism that runs through the entire thing that sort of stops this dystopian future from being so much a prophecy as it is actually, as dystopias are meant to be, a warning to us in the present not to let this happen. It's an optimism that, you know, at the same time feels uniquely Australian, but also just generally human. And the book does a really good job of balancing the idea of Australianism with the reality of Australianism. So it's got the optimistic, she'll be right, mate, attitude, whilst showing that it won't always just be right. You've actually got to put some legwork in to make it be right. You can't just stick your head in the sand and say, ah, we'll just keep doing what we've always done. She'll be right. Because when you do that, the monster that you've been ignoring will just come charging through the centre of town. And not to get too political about things, but as we said, I'm recording this after another surprise lockdown in Australia, which kind of mirrors some of the, ah, she'll be right, attitudes that were present in this book right before the monster just rampaged through through New Sydney. And the book straddles the idea that the Australian value of mateship, you know, like, build up your mates, be there for your mates has a double edge because what we say in Mateship for Australia, this great egalitarian society of ours, and what the reality is, you know, this reality as portrayed in the book where you've got the protagonist who is a mutant, so a minority, and is just routinely scumbagged by the government, by the mainstream society that is left, the Australian dichotomy of always be there for your mates, but also somehow kick everybody else when they're down is really well displayed and it's really well explored. And the allegory of Franger's journey and his coming of age in this brutal environment really has a lot to say about the way that a society views itself as opposed to the way a society acts. And it's refreshing to see that exploration not only taken with Franger, but with a wide variety of the different characters in the book. We've got, you know, we've got psychopathic sadists, we've got asexual prostitutes, we've got god-botherers who really truly believe in their message, and some who don't. We've got kids, we've got adults, we've got the elderly, and the different ways that each of those groups are treated by the society and the different ways that society has organized itself in order to create barriers between each of them. So when you get this apocalyptic creature that is just sweeping through the remaining humans of New Sydney and literally, literally removing the barriers that have been put in place, like really being the opposite of dividing people, 
it's really cool to see how that is handled and how it's turned around in the climax uh, back on itself with the uh, with the upstanding and epic power of overdramatic theater kids. <laughs> it's really it's a really unique solution to a uh, to a, a wonderful problem that the narrative set in place, and it's really one of those resolutions and climaxes that is absolutely ludicrous and absolutely suitable for the narrative and the tone and manages to have a true emotional impact on the reader because of the wonderful legwork that's been done in setting the entire world and the narrative up to that point. If I picked out the conclusion right now and explained it, or just even read it verbatim without the rest of the book, it would sound utterly ridiculous. But in the place that it is, and this speaks to the the real power of the storytelling that O'Connor has put into this, it's a super engaging and really satisfying conclusion that just draws together all the major themes of the story and puts them into a single scene that just stops the action and it's almost like the book and the characters are speaking directly to the reader and saying, this is what the book is about, this is what's important in life, and now we need you to go out and live this way so that we don't get here. And I honestly don't know what more you can ask of a really great dystopian future novel than that. So honestly, you know, all over from top to bottom, this book is just fantastic. The characters, the language, the narrative, the message, themes, the world building. It's a really, really enjoyable read. And it's not surprising that although I didn't recognize the name Anthony O'Connor, knowing that this is his debut novel, I was sort of a little, you know, trepidatious about what I was going to expect, but it's it's obvious his long history working in screenwriting and journalism and just with words is really made this probably one of the best books that I've read uh, in the last, you know, six, 12 months. And it's always a really good sign of a book's quality when there are a couple of things there in the world building which still didn't really get resolved by the end of the story. And I don't know whether this is intended to be the first in a series or whether it is purely a standalone novel. It definitely works as a standalone, but there are some dangling threads which could be teased out into a, into a larger world. But it really, as I say, it really speaks well to the narrative quality that the bits that aren't resolved or explained quite well enough. And I'm going to head into a little bit of potentially spoilery territory just for a second, although I'm not going into any of the specifics as to this, but we still don't know really what the catalyst is or what it was designed to do more specifically. We know what it does because we see that happening on the page, but we still don't know why it was designed to do this and what that is for. It's kind of hard to understand and reconcile, perhaps, what the purpose of the thing that creates the monster could possibly be, whereas every other of the inventions, the corporate 
experimentation in the book has a very clearly defined purpose for its creation and a clearly defined job that it's doing. This one really doesn't. But the power of the allegory of it and just the purpose that it has in the narrative is strong enough to overcome that lack of specificity. And a little bit of mystery is good sometimes in a novel. It's sort of the you know, the archaeologist in me still still beating on the walls, wanting to sort of scrape away that just last bit of context and really understand what, what we're looking at. But its flow is perfectly good without that specific knowledge. And there's a real uniqueness to the technology that's in this world as well. Not just the genetic technology, the experimentations and the mutations and everything else that ultimately links back to Nanocorp, the corporate, for want of a better word, overlord of New Sydney. Although as a overlord, they're more of an absentee ruler uh, than anything else, especially in the districts that uh, that this novel spends most of its time in. You've got some really cool things like like the corporate assassin that uh, that is present in the book, like you know some really interesting playing around with memory and personality and how that how people can change very literally, and just the little tidbits that are sort of dropped in everywhere that gives a pretty good picture of what life in the Strayan society was like before the great big apocalyptic event which just wiped out all of the tech and started this just cycle of absolute environmental chaos and destruction. You know, right up to and including stripping the entire ozone layer away. It's all really subtly placed through the narrative. It doesn't front and centre itself, but it's there enough that you get a really good understanding of what's going on in the world, why it is the way it is, and what the dangers are that that Franger and crew have to face every day, and what the stakes will be if they can't stop the current threat. So all in all, like basically what all this fancy mouth gear is saying is that this book is a bloody beaut. It's pretty darn grouse, it's worth a squiz, and you'd be a bit of a drongo if you didn't want to go out and pick it up. I'll put some links in the show notes under the podcast that'll help you find where to get a copy of this fantastic book, Strayer, by Anthony O'Connor. And I do highly recommend that if you've got a few quid to spare, drop them on this. You won't regret it. It's a cracking read. And if you have read it, or you do go out and read it and want to talk about it as much as I did, then feel free to drop us a line at the Terry Talks Fiction Discord server, links to that as well in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at TCMacManus, M-A-C, and of course you can visit TerryTalksFiction.com as the hub for all of that. We'll be back again next week with another review, and I've been watching the Loki TV series as well. I'm sure that many of you out there have seen it and were blown away by the final episode and how that looks that I get setting up the entire next phase of Marvel's movies. I have a review of the series as well for Terry Talks Fiction but also looking to see if I can tee up a guest for the podcast where we can chat it over 
and have a really deep dive on what we enjoyed about it. So that'll be coming up soon. If you haven't watched the series or haven't finished it, um, I recommend you have a crack at that as well. And uh, I'm absolutely for having a great chat about that with anyone who's fool enough to bring up the topic with me. So until next time, I hope that you do read or watch or play something that's really great, and I look forward to talking about it with you all again soon. I hit it up me coit, he cackled, then winced mightily as he pulled it out of his tradesman's entrance with an audible pop. I mean, come on.